Welcome to In The Pink, the podcast with me, Natalie Pinkham, where I speak to all sorts of different people from all sorts of different backgrounds and find out about their lives, their regrets, their hopes, their dreams, their ambitions, the most important people to them and the sliding door moments that have defined their lives. Now, this week is a real character. I believe that life needs more people like Eddie Jordan. He is full of opinion, mischief and fun. So, the perfect person then to chat to about the past, present and future of Formula One. And of course, the politics, the gossip, the drama of the pit lane and the paddock. It's sometimes easy to forget just how many big names that Eddie has worked directly with in Formula One. The likes of Nigel Mansell, Damon Hill, Ayrton Senna and Michael Schumacher. Eddie tells me about his work to help troubled teenagers get their lives back on track. He tells me about his love and steadfast commitment to his family and his new initiative that helps young people get on the property ladder. Eddie is one of the most connected people in Formula One, but also in music. His passion for music comes from a happy but financially challenging childhood growing up in what was a politically volatile island. Eddie is both interesting and interested with a strong view of the world that he's not afraid to share which makes this podcast well worth a listen. So here we are, Bloomsbury Ballroom. Tell us why we're here tonight, Eddie. Um, oh, every couple of years I do a thing which I'm very closely involved with, a charity called uh, Amber. It's about, as it clearly defines, you know, it's the difference between red and green. It's somewhere in the middle. It's where kids go off the rails, um, either get badly abused by uh, drugs, drink... Physical violence, sexual violence, all sorts of mental violence, all sorts of things. They live rough, but they have to want to get off what they're doing uh, and to come straight and be clean. They come to Amber, which is a home. We give them about normally six months um, under our, if you like, our, our guidance and so forth. And hopefully they go out much better people. And the success rate is remarkable, really. It's about uh, 80, 85 percent. Uh, of the kids that come to us go back they don't re-offend very often they go into all sorts of caring and services industries uh, there was a time we used to get a lot into the police and in particular into the army that's semi slowed down a touch so we're looking at new avenues to place people to give them a chance in life to move on and the reason why I'm so involved in this is really because um, I know what it was like growing up in Ireland and, and so many of us could have been on that side of the line instead of being lucky with parents and friends mm. to keep us on the straight and narrow. Mm. So that's how easy it is to be there. Mm. Fantastic initiative. Good on you. Um, so tell us about that childhood in Ireland growing up. Why was it tough for you? Uh, well, it was... Uh, we don't want to get too political on, it, on your programme. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> don't you worry <laughs> about that. You know, I, I came out of just, just end of the war and um, Ireland was a place where I was very confused because a lot of people had uh, signed up to go and fight for the British Army, and yet it was confusing because Ireland was controlled, or had been controlled by Britain, um, quite forcefully, and uh, with the black and tans, and it was difficult from my side because my grandfather was shot dead in front of the family by the black and tans. Um, so we come from a very Republican family, uh, where we believed Ireland was one country, should be one country, and um, not necessarily to take life for that, but to be very strong in our view that this is a republic. Um, and, of course, that happened, but it was uh, split from the north of Ireland, which was a shame in many, many ways, because um, it, it's a natural island, it should be one, and um, but it's not, and it's still not. Um, and, but everybody is living in peace now, and uh, the Good Friday Agreement has been remarkable. And I just genuinely hope my hand I cannot tell you how anxious I am about where Brexit uh, will eventually wind up with regard to Ireland and the border it's such a crucial factor mm. and um, we need to make sure we respect everyone's view and everyone's position and we must make sure that no one is taken advantage of mm. uh, that would be a really retrograde step and it would not be positive for anybody. 
What were your? That's my party political broadcast. Know, yes. Did you like that? Yeah, you can stay on the soapbox. That's fine with me. <laughs> uh, how were your coping mechanisms for that kind of childhood? Because you know, it must have been an awful lot of external influences and confusion, if you like, growing up in that environment. Um, well, by nature, it was uh, quite poor. Um, certainly didn't. Uh, I wouldn't have had in in ten years. Uh, the number of shoes that I would have now in 10 weeks so you know uh, what I'm saying is that um, whatever you had you were very happy to have had mm. and you grew up in that and so you made things so um, you find so many people interested in music in Ireland and yeah. the reason is because you had to make your own entertainment uh, why am I so passionate about music for that very reason so Christmas day after dinner um, your mother and your father everyone got up and sang their song uh, because televisions weren't a thing that you had. Mm. Um, so I remember when I was 18, um, the first ever television. We knew about televisions in other parts of the world, of course, and very much so, BBC in particular. And we used to try and get invited to friends, well-off, better-off friends, who would have a television, particularly to go and see the European Cup final. I remember uh-huh. saying, uh, you know, that was one of the strongest memories in my mind. I was probably about uh, 11 or 12, pretty much fascinated by football. Uh, going to see the genius that Puskas was playing for Real Madrid and uh, that is such a strong memory God, that's 60 years ago at least and you know it's amazing how memories like that flow back into your brain uh, and, and come back because they're things you never forget mm. and, um, and but we were never sad because we didn't have the money we were never never felt um, I never felt that I, I was going without uh, I always had uh, a nice room to sleep in and to go to school and to do my studies or whatever it is and, and my mother was such a strong woman she always made sure there was enough food on the table um, but you know luxurious items um, I mean a car didn't come along till I was about 16 or 15 or something like that um, and um, so so um, we if, listen I had the best upbringing best childhood but you know having said that things were cheap you know you went and played golf uh, you didn't hardly pay for it because everybody in Ireland played golf <laughs> it's where I learned to, play, to sail um, because it didn't have an engine it didn't cost money to buy fuel so everyone had some sort of a little boat that you play this is a summer holidays in bet- um, so you would sail in the morning and play golf in the afternoon and, and then do your chores or so whatever around the house or whatever it is so I lived and was brought up by the sea just outside Dublin and um, I'd have, uh, it was the best upbringing that I could ever imagine. I mean, because if you talk to... Um, you obviously had nothing to compare it to. If you had the luxurious items around you that you could see but couldn't quite grasp, that'd be another thing. But also, whenever we talk to children through, through our charity, Hope and Homes of Children, none of them say, oh, I want a better pair of trainers. They were, I want a family. And family is something that, as long as I've known you, is so important to you. And in that, that structure and that um, sense of well-being that that offers, you could be anywhere, couldn't you, as long as you've got well, family? Well, I think, um, you know, there are different countries and different environments. The family is something that, for me, is, is hugely important. Um, uh, I met a girl 40-odd years ago, and um, I married her then, and I'm still married to, to Marie. And uh, she's Go on, Marie. You've done, you're a saint. <laughs> uh, well, Marie is... Um, 10 years my junior I mean she said how on earth did I ever agree to marry you (laughs) and then recently she told me that she thought that she'd now left it too late to leave me so (laughs) I don't know whether that's a positive move or a bad move but anyway they're the kind of comments Uh, and it's probably we can't have uh, family holidays anymore because there's too many grandchildren we'd need uh, a multiple mini sized uh, hotel to to, uh, look after them all but anyway so um, we're still together and that's that's an important but I was always let do what I wanted to do Marie is very much an Irish mother uh, very protective of the family um, and everything that goes around inside the family. And then with, uh, with, with reasonable respect, um, you can more or less do what you want, providing you, you don't bring any shame or sadness to the family mm. by doing stupid things. And um, that, that applies to every family throughout the world. If they can do it, that's what they need to do. Mm. And um, I'm lucky, but I've always said that I'm the luckiest person on earth, without any question. Everything I seem to have done Yes, of course, I've got kickbacks and I've got knockbacks. But, you know, I've always pushed them aside. And I always say, without any hesitation, 
look at such an important factor, whether it's health, whether it's family, whether mm-hmm. it's money, mm-hmm. whether it's business, whether it's anything that you, you know, you're striving or try to do. You need so much. You need an element of luck in each case. And I got more than my fair share. Absolutely. And four great kids, as you say. Now, you've got tattoos, haven't you? You've told me this before. Can I have a look? There we go. Now, explain so for our listeners what it, what it is. Well, um, I'm not sure if your listeners really want to hear bad words. But oh, they anyway. can, yes. Um, but, you know, um, my daughter Zoe, who's a feisty girl, very tough girl. She's a, a girl in the fashion business. She owns uh, Zoe Jordan. It's a fashion label, doing quite well. Very and, well, yeah. And beautiful. she uh, dresses lots of different people from... Uh, Kira Knightley to Sienna Miller to Lady Gaga to, to Gigi Habib and all sorts she, she'll flow off all the names I'm only just thinking of ones that I actually know of um, but anyway, uh, she was getting married and um, she said Dad um, come with me I'm Bring Killer and Zach and they're so her two brothers two yeah. brothers her two brothers so the three of us were marched, marched into this uh, tattoo parlour and I said well I'm not having any tattoos forget mm-hmm. it no, none of that uh, no way and um, so we were sat down and we all put out our right wrist and on the inside of our right wrist we had the words, the letters FTB which is a very famous uh, Irish expression synonymous with the Jordan family it's one of the things that we hold dearest to ourselves and um, it's very similar it's it's, it's, uh, fuck the begrudgers and a begrudger is a person who is either envious or a little bit jealous or whatever it is because sometimes people don't quite use the word begrudgers but it's a very very popular word in Ireland because I think in every walk of life you have somebody who either begrudges you or envies you or doesn't want you to, and it's, it's, it's a nice thing why we had it done but we, we, we had it all done in lieu of having to give her a, a wedding present so that was okay <laughs> so it probably worked but it's there and I you know it's not something that I would ever I've never been to a, a tattoo parlour since uh, <laughs> and probably at this stage definitely won't do it again however um it was fun, and uh, the boys, when we were having a drink at Christmas, and we were all sorry, we just had lunch together, and um, you know we always show ourselves our wrists together. And we always put the wrists up. It's like our bond. It's our yeah. union. It's our blood. It's our DNA. It's us. We're having fun, guys. And this was a crazy thing that Zoe made us do, um, but um, it stood the test of time, and it's been quite fun doing so. And not a bad slogan to live life by, I have to say. Well, you know, the thing is that it's not necessarily um, a a stylish slogan, but, you know, it infers everything. Um, You know, uh, when I say uh, growing up in Ireland, where I have to say that I was grateful, um, that when I did make the chance to come to England and to Britain, um, I was given such a good chance. Mm. Uh, I was set up in Silverstone. Um, and the reason I'm talking about the setup and how accommodating and how welcoming um, the British people were to, we'll say, particularly Irish people or people from Ireland or any country who were prepared to work and to be part mm. of the community. Um, the, the, the opposite side, at the same time, I set up a little team um, in France. And uh, it was fine while I wasn't successful. When I started to win some races, um, things became slightly more difficult. So, well done to the British people um, and it's partly because we settled here kids went to school here and um, and uh, you know in many respects it would be very easy for me to dislike um, the, the British people partly because of what my mother had gone mm-hmm. through and their family and, and how Ireland was, was ruled um, by Britain for four, five, six hundred years. Um, but we're all as one and we've forgotten it and we're all now mm-hmm. good friends and we're all going to get on with it. And we just hope that everything um, that's happening in the world, um, you know, we want Britain to be very strong. Mm-hmm. Now, racing clearly sears through your veins, but when did you first realise you could make a living out of it? Well, um, making a living was always uh, um, difficult um, because there's elements of what is making a living. Is struggling that you're actually starving and you're able to just say that you're making a living. But where I made the chance, I, I uh, won a championship in Ireland um, and then I won a former Atlantic championship which was half in Britain and half in Ireland and some races in Europe. And then this guy... Um, George Mackin who was the head of Marlborough at the time and um, he wanted somebody to help create a brand called Raffles and uh, he used he asked me 
would I help him because I had as far as he was concerned I had the gift of the gab and the blarney and all that sort of stuff I don't know what he's talking about he didn't know he was completely (laughs) a bad judge of character but anyway he put me together with James Hunt now if you could imagine Uh, James Hunt and I that would be not a combo made in heaven but it turned (laughs) out to be magical and I adored every moment that I had with that man and um, we started a brand called Raffles and that worked and part of the payoff was that I did um, I was part of the Marlborough World Championship team and there were some unbelievable people in there at the time of course none of them uh, were world champions and they didn't have a clue I certainly didn't have a clue all I knew was that these were incredibly quick drivers and James was one of them uh, Nicky Lauda was the other uh, Emerson Fittipaldi um, Alan Prost and we know that they all became world champions and I certainly didn't but what I learned by being part of that mechanism, by being part of that team, both from a technical point of view, a structure point of view, seeing how it was Mm. organised, and in particularly on a marketing point of view. I learned so much. Mm. And I said, well, clearly I'm not as good as these. But I I didn't know how good they were. Um, I wasn't to know that each and every one of them were going to become multiple world champions in many cases. Um, But the fact that I was in that team was a godsend to me. I, I, I felt that this was... A privilege. You'd pay fortune mm. to be in a school of that ilk, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, that's how it happened. And, and fast forward to '91, where you've got your name emblazoned on the side of the car. How much of a kick was that? Well, you say that, but you know, the real—if I'm—if I'm to look back over times that I had, I would say my my favourite time in racing was prior to that. Um, so the uh, coming in and starting the team in '81. In finished the racing yeah 81 82 I found Senna and brought him to Macau in 83 I mean, that is crazy you have been associated with some of the biggest yeah, names the in the first sport. time Senna drove a Formula yeah. 3 car was at Silverstone in May in June 1982 that's Amazing. a long time ago yeah. and he had just come he'd been testing for Russian Green in the morning in Formula 2000 he'd never driven a Formula 3 car so I reached out to him and said listen why don't you come and drive this for me and uh, of course um, we became friends good friends and we went to Macau with Dickie Bennett for the Marlboro team which I still stayed close to and we won Macau and did you um, see straight away this, this talent was it yeah. really wow and uh, you know we, we can roll it on for seven years more but actually a colleague of yours was in between uh, because he'd never driven in fact he'd only ever done motorcycles but I'd kind of known his dad before he died and that was Graham Hill's mm, son Damon, Damon. Yeah. Uh, and uh, how things you know roll out in in 85 in Donington Park the first time he drove uh, a Formula 3 car was a Jordan car um, so that was another world champion uh, and then how ironical, ironic should it be that he, he should come back and win our first ever Grand Prix so you know a lot of love a lot of memories mm. and um, you're talking about the gig here tonight he's going to help me on stage tonight and hopefully ah, he's going to interview some of my kids for me um, along with Suggs from Madness so that should be a nice little combo we'll that's see how they great. get on together wow. anyway and then of course uh, you're right 91 and Michael Schumacher was a different thing it was Formula 1 that was pressure 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 yeah. and um, so um, I mean how much of a coup though to give so Schumacher his debut in Formula 1 that's something that well must always. Mm, yeah, but you know, no. he, it wasn't. That wasn't an easy time for me. We were absolutely skint. Well, you lost uh, him straight afterwards, didn't you? To well, we lost him straight afterwards. A lot of people don't actually realise the, the race he was to due to do, which was Spa, um, because of Gasho. And then again, the funny thing is, Gasho should have been here, but missed a plane from Dubai today. Uh, and Gasho and I are good friends, even though he said for years and years that I, uh, I it was a contributory factor in him being um, banged up in the nick uh, in England and he got 18 months, you remember? Yes, yeah, 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 of course. And his daughter is the most amazing, gorgeous singer. Um, She's here tonight. And so anyway, (laughs) this is a small world. They're all coming. All the hangers-on. And then I just bludgeoned them into coming and helping my (laughs) charity. Anyway, so the the fact... Just go back a little bit to the Senate, the 80s. You know, there was... I won a championship with Johnny Herbert I had Jean Alessi I met Martin Donnelly and then there was Damon Hill um, obviously in 83 I had Brundle yeah. so all your colleagues yeah. um, each and every one of them I used to kick their ass so make sure you <laughs> when you're next on the next show with them you tell them because um, um, you know they came and they were all brilliant in their own right mm. um, I felt that Johnny Herbert was probably as close to Senna and Schumacher as anybody else wow. 
he was that good. Wow. Uh, he didn't apply himself in the same way, um, but he had bundles of natural ability. Yeah. Of course, then he had that big accident yeah. in our car in Brands Hatch, and that was a shocker. Um, but then he went off and... and um, you know, we went to Benetton and he mm. went to this and that. The other Peter Collins took him under his wing and uh, he did so well. Um, and I'm so happy I see him. Obviously, every time I had a Grand Prix, yeah. I see him there. And yeah. um, I love Johnny. He lived with us for a long time and uh, as a family um, because he just felt comfortable. Our kids, the girls were growing up and, and Johnny was there for them. Yeah. And he big, long, blonde, curly hair and they used to just... He'd sit there like a just just a normal guy and they'd be putting rollers in his hair and <laughs> oh he would have loved that oh he just me. we still do it to him now girls. come on perfect for him but he, oh, he's, but they, he's they were the magic joy. days for me yeah. because we were living in a trailer um, uh, it, it wasn't long before that you know I, I was driving uh, a truck with a caravan on the back and Marie and I and, and Zoe was born then she, we would live in the caravan and uh, roll the car out make some money go on to the next race but this was all in Europe and I think Britain never quite did that because you used to do the race and come back. No matter how long the drive was, at least you'd get home. Mm. But that wasn't the case. You'd be in Sandvoort one day, which is in Holland, and the next day you could be in northern Italy the next week. And you just drive between the two, and hopefully somebody would come with money. to. Very seldom would I have a driver for the season. I mean, it was a guy here and a guy there mm. and somewhere there, and they'd pay you for that. And if they were good enough, you get prize money, and then you wouldn't leave the circuit without getting... Nowadays, it's all transfers from banks to banks. At that stage, you wouldn't leave the track until they paid you, and because you wouldn't have the money to go well, down nice the road. Nice envelopes. Well, no, it was all legit and all clear. This is, this is your money for yeah. fifth place, and you wait for the money, and you'd have enough to get petrol to go. Wow. You know, you'd be in, in Mizano one day in yeah. west the east part of Italy near Ancona and the next thing you'd be in Sicily for the next race and um, that's how it went and you know the, so Johnny Herbert knows all about that and then I had a, a European team uh, Jean Alessi Martin Donnelly and they were all guys and that was the most fascinating time I absolutely loved my memories of that now are probably the best of ever Formula 1 was far too serious far too stressful mm. far too money orientated Bernie had it by a stranglehold I absolutely love Bernie but you know uh, you never knew from one end of the week to the other whether you would be able to survive it and, and people often say to me what was the best part of Formula 1 mm. and I said to survive it um, that's true you know to actually make it from one end to the other without going bankrupt as a private individual because mm. it was a private team we didn't have big manufacturers we didn't have any other major partners so we did it it was Marie and I uh, I'd come home she didn't really want to hear about the detail of the, the aggravation factor and just coming back to the Michael Schumacher uh, what people may not fully understand and um, why would they I suppose because they don't know but when he did his first ever drive the Friday he didn't do the test on the Friday and the reason being was because the bailiff had come and locked the doors of the truck and we weren't able to lift them until Bernie got enough money from the people at the gate to pay the bailiff off which allowed the locks off the truck roll the car out and put the car on the track that's true I mean you say, and you're looking back on it now, and it's obviously incredible stories and memories, but that must have been stressful at the time. You've got a young family trying to put food on the table, and you don't even know if you're going to race that weekend to, to generate enough cash well, to feed your kids. Uh, I've been very, very fortunate in terms of health-wise, uh, and I've only been really ill once, and that was in 91, and there is absolutely no doubt about my mind that the stress and mm. the illness was directly linked to the financial stress of Formula Mm. 1 and people talk about stress of this that and the other but when you've got a number of people and at that time I probably had less than 100 people working but you've got suppliers and staff and sponsors and people and uh, their wives and their kids going to school and you realise how many people are semi-dependent on you or fully dependent on you and you realise man this is so stressful and mm. um, the obligation of finding money to pay them every week and one of the great feelings of satisfaction that when I'm in a paddock and I'm walking up and down like I was last weekend in Singapore um, 
Not one person who's ever worked for Jordan can say that I owe them money. Not one person, not one supplier, not one. Everyone got paid. Mm. And, you know, when I now reflect back over what people maybe sometimes, unfortunately, have been in a bad position, have, have left me short of money and haven't paid me. But I paid, Jordan Grand Prix paid mm. every single Mm. And that's why I can go into any motorhome. Yeah. Yeah. I can go up and down the place. So that gives me great satisfaction. And you can sleep easy at night. I mean, if you if you look, uh, and there is a sense of irony to this, that that your team then evolved into Force India, who of course have had a, a tumultuous summer, not knowing whether they've got jobs to go to the next day. What do you make of all of that? And really, in this day and age, should that be happening? Look, when Jordan, um, which to be very fair, um, I. You know, Bernie said to me, "Look, he he, he was so helpful to me um, in many ways, but so uh, many times he would say the things I didn't want to hear, um, and things like uh, Jordan, get the hell out of here, uh, the gig is over. You've done 15, 16 years in Formula One, you've survived it. Don't dick about, just get the fuck out of here." Mm. And um, he was so right. Uh, but you never want to hear that, you know. Mm. You never want to hear that because reality sometimes hurts more than anything else when mm. you're actually hearing, you know, maybe he's right. Um, but he was right. Uh, and I sold it. I, I was perhaps quite fortunate and he helped me sell it. Mm. Uh, he, I remember going to his office when he said, Jordan, you better come and see me here at such a time. And uh, yeah, okay, I went along and opened the door and with these two people there that I didn't know them, he said, these two people are here to buy your team. And I said, oh um, I said, uh, really? Is that a fact, Bernie? I said, what's, what's your what's your little deal in this? Because you know, yeah. with Bernie, it always has to be a bit of a deal. And um, so we trashed out a little situation. They put figures. I of course said no. They went off, and they, and I said uh, they were very hard nosed. Um, but that's what happened. And then of course the Indians came along with Force India. Um, but they have a different style, different culture of running a business, very different to a European type uh, or Western style. Was that uh, part of the problem, do you think? Uh, well, their idea of paying people is a much slower process, but that's a culture thing. I'm not sure that's, that's a, a fault or a failing with any one individual. They have a different uh, mode of conduct in terms of how they do it. It's not better, it's not worse, it's different. Mm. Um, but you have to understand it. Mm. Uh, and maybe you have to wait longer or maybe you have to put in various different structures uh, and funding to, to make that transition part work. And from that point of view, uh, I got it. But, you know, I was very tough with them. They were very tough with me. They paid me, but they didn't want to pay me extra for this, that and the other. Um, I remember ordering huge, big massive concrete blocks so that they couldn't get into work as I owned the right of way on the driveway and you know it's little things like that that you think back and they say man weren't you very brave to do that anything could have happened to you I said well what could have happened to me um, they weren't going to do you know it was simple they just had to pay me simple and they paid uh, but you know I, I, I look and talk to the guys in the team and for what they've done just to be very clear about what I, my view is on something like Force India bearing in mind Everything that's happening to the team, what happened to VJ, uh, the problems that he incurred both with his business and in particular uh, um, wanting him back to face charges in, in, in India must have been a huge problem for him, mm -hmm. for a man who was enormously wealthy. And uh, I have to say for the team and for him, it's been a traumatic four years. Mm. But for the team to have done as well as it's done with the limited amount of cash, resources, reserves and the inability to either buy the things that they probably really wanted to be able to buy, uh, the staff that they wanted to re-employ or find mm. time to be able to employ them, I have... It's a miracle. Yeah. What they have done with the money that they've had, when you look at other well-funded teams... Now, I don't want to compare them directly as such to somebody like McLaren, but when you see what McLaren have in terms of the facilities, the structure, the funding, the sponsors, um, and the huge technical brilliance of staff that they've got... Compare that to the size and everything that they do. Force India, you have to say, yeah. is punching way above their yeah. weight. And I see now with Lawrence going there, um, it'll take, in my opinion, Lawrence Stroll is there, as we know most people, in case they don't know in your podcast, 
um, what a success he made with Tommy Hilfiger, mm. what a major success we, he did with, uh, with, with the jeans, uh, Peppy Jeans. And, and Michael and, and Kors, and yeah. Michael Kors yeah. in particular. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a remarkable story with mm. Silas Chow. Uh, between them, they are one of the real heroes of the fashion world. Mm. So if he's able to put some of that... And the fashion world is difficult, I can tell you. I know from, from my Zoe, daughter yeah. Zoe. Um, so if they're able to put some of that experience, that knowledge, mm. into what they're doing uh, at Force India, whatever the new name's going to be, um, then I would suggest to the other teams, just be a little careful and don't just write them off yet. I mean, I doubt they would. When you say some of the results they pulled out under the toughest of circumstances is there a person that you can single out in the team and give them credit for that or do you think it was a collective effort a small collective well it's always a collected effort but there is um, obviously uh, I remember employing uh, a young kid in the early 80s um, and he was from Northampton and I remember saying to him I think you're a bit too posh for this business Uh, and that was a bit of a cheeky thing because Mm -hmm. his mother drove him up to the factory for an interview and uh, I sat him down and I gave him a job to do which I'm not going to tell you what it was because it wasn't very pleasant <laughs> um, and he came back after a half an hour and I said to him I thought I told you to do something so I've done it and I went to have a look what he did and he had done it and I employed him and you are of course talking and he's about still there. Andy Stevenson uh, hmm? you're talking about Andy Stevenson yeah yeah great so Steve-O is there um, he, he's there since uh, he, he, I put him on Johnny Herbert's car he then was on Alessi's car he was on uh, Irvine's car he, he went on to uh, he, he was on Gasho's car but he went. He was on Schumacher's car and he won those races uh, with, with Frenzen and Damon Hill uh, the guys had a roller coaster career but I have say that you know it's not just him because it'd be wrong to pinpoint one there's lots of other people um there's lots of people um that uh, um who who deserve a credit and applause and and funny enough only at the weekend um uh the, the senior guys have have come back mm. and um what was And of course, in particular case, you know, Andy helps to run the team. He's the sporting director. But but uh, another Andrew Green mm. uh, was there with Gary Anderson yeah. and Mark Smith right uh, in Gary day Anderson one. Was, yeah, he was with you. From so day the one, three of yeah. us started in '89. Wow. I put them running. Each of them forming what they were doing was engineering a Formula 3000 car while we were drawing the first Formula One Jordan Amazing. car. And uh, who's still there drawing and making the car? And the upgrades that they had at the weekend certainly worked. Yeah. Uh, I think Checo was a bit stupid at the weekend, but then never mind that for the moment. Um, uh, Andy Green is one of those unsung heroes, and uh, he goes about his business in a very, very casual, um, o- almost, uh, you know, just really cool situation nothing ever is going to stress him uh, but he is a brilliant brilliant designer no question I feel like they're all kind of slightly under the radar which in, in, in a way is probably a good thing they're kind of out of the prying lights of the media and they get on with it well you say that but uh, I, you know one of the lovely things I, I had a long chat with uh, Andy Stevenson and that is that virtually every one of their top people during this crisis were approached by other teams mm and not one of them left ah, and I love hearing stories that like is that. awesome that is awesome uh, because they believe in what is there um, and if they're able to put together the final parts of that jigsaw which we hope Lawrence Stroll would be able to do mm. uh, and that is uh, to put a structure in place that's solid that's transparent uh, that's properly funded not ridiculously funded but properly funded um, believe me, I think the new team uh, that will come out of what is Force India today and whatever the name is going to be uh, will be a team that will be need to be reckoned with. Do you know, I've actually got Andy Stevenson's wife, Joanna Shields, coming on the podcast. She's, of course, a former Facebook executive, so yeah. she's all about... Um, you know, internet safety and all the rest of it. She's I want a f- you to ask her in our podcast. Go on. How did she meet him? Oh. How did she meet him? Now, will she stop? She met him po- at a Grand Prix ball that I did. So basically, you have to take the credit for this. One thousand percent. When did I never take the credit for something like that? Of course I did. That's amazing. 
That's something you could also take the credit for quite a lot, is is breaking stories in F1. Now, uh, again, when I first came into the sport seven years ago, you were always just known as the guy, fingers in pies, just very well connected, um, finger on the pulse, fingers on pies and pulses in pies. The point was, you know everyone. And as a result, you seem to break stories before a lot of other people. So I'm thinking Lewis to Mercedes, Schumacher's return in 2010, Massa leaving Ferrari. Is this a reputation that you've deliberately cultivated? And and do you enjoy this kind of feeling of uh, being just slightly ahead of the curve? Um, Well... You have to be either close to what's going on or have people who are close to it. I I mentioned a word that I spent uh, in my early days, which was uh, uh, Nicky Lauda. Of course, it was Nicky who sent me in to go and speak to Lewis to try and see what the situation was. Could Lewis ever leave McLaren to go to Mercedes? Well, clearly I knew what was going on because I was kind of on... So I was a little bit naughty by saying what I did, but... That day in Singapore, mm. uh, I did run with a bit of a punt. I was saying it was going to happen mm. when in actual fact it hadn't been signed. And w- did you get in trouble for that? No, how would, who's going to give me trouble? Well, I know, that's the thing, isn't it? So, you don't uh, get in no, trouble no. in the way that normal um, people do. Uh, no, but I, I remember. Well, you didn't jeopardise anything by breaking it. McLaren were never happy. Of right. course, they were never happy. But, you know, that's McLaren's... Uh, that's the other person. If they're not prepared to believe mm. that something could happen... Yeah. And if they believe that they are so uh, great or such a position, that the relationship is so strong, mm. that somebody like Lewis Hamilton leaving McLaren mm. could never come into their framework. Mm. Uh, but I can understand why, because he'd been there since a very young age, 14 or whatever it is, mm. and they probably felt... But, you know, there seemed to have been a breakdown somewhere along there, which may not... Everyone in the team may not have been fully either up to speed with or... so. For Lewis to leave, I'd say it was a gut wrencher for Lewis, but he was determined to do it. Right. And from that point of view, um, that was easy. Mike, Michael's return was, uh, I shouldn't have known, but there was a request for an insurance thing and this and that and the other, so I realised something was going on, and so I followed up a little lead. And I, you know, was getting the right little zeros coming up and the right lights were coming up in front of my eyes. And I said, you know, I, I've got to believe that this is really likely to happen. And the fan in you wanted it to happen, I'm sure. Well, I'm not sure. That wasn't, that wasn't part of my thinking at the time. Well, you didn't I, I want to see wanted, back I just wanted to get the story. I just wanted to make the break. Right. And that's how that happened. Yeah. But there's lots of things, um, you know, more recently. I mean, uh, the fact that... Um, this young kid Ocon was getting mm. the chance but I was actually involved with Force India on that decision Andy and I both agreed that it had to be him and then there was a lot of pushing for Verline and various things like that and I felt it I felt uh, you know I'd been asked for my opinion um, and uh, I pushed strongly for Ocon and we know how good he's turned out mm. to be that's not to say Verline wouldn't have been the same but you know I, I felt that I do feel a bit sorry for Verlein. There was a, a stage when we were talking about him being the next big thing and no, he's sort of fallen released, away. Yeah, he's been released by Mercedes now. I have to say... I have well, a problem on that. Just on the, I have a problem on that. Yeah. And that is that I'm trying to figure out, and I mentioned it uh, on our particular show to Mark Webber and to I mentioned it to Toto in particular, mm. and I said, the situation for drivers at the moment has changed fundamentally from when Mark and David was talking. They could come to me and talk to me, and if I had a space, I'd talk to them about what my deal is, and mm. they could go away and work out what it is. Now, it seems like you're either in Mercedes and part of Toto's yeah, team, yeah. or you're in Ferrari and you're part of that team, even mm. though it might be mm. a separate mm. manager or something. Um, but that the reality mm. is that... I think you're conflicted, mm. you know, for well, me, no good. I mean, if it's you, a conflict, yeah, it, it, because it, at the moment, Ocon, yeah. just, we talked about him yeah. in a second, let's go back to him, Ocon had an agreement and shook hands with Renault, yeah. Renault then decided eventually that they couldn't and wouldn't do it, yeah. or well, they also whatever. got Daniel, they got Daniel accepted they their offer, they got Daniel at yeah. the time, but they couldn't take Ocon, mm. and they didn't take Ocon, um, because uh, they were very afraid um, that Ocon would go back or give information back to Mercedes yeah. Yeah. or his manager is Toto Wolf and I, I, I 
I think that's anti-competitive. Mm. I think it's certainly conflicting. Mm. And so, are we not likely to see Ocon next year? I asked Toto mm. that on Sunday afternoon. Is it possible we won't see Ocon in Formula One next year? And two weeks ago he said he would be, mm. and I said, are you still confident that's what's going to happen? And he backtracked from that because things obviously clearly have mm. changed. Mm. Um, but I think that would be an absolute shame. I mean, he's such a talent. And it's ironic, isn't it, that the, 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 the thing, person, that he thought would be saving and accelerating his career actually looks like the one that's well, well, a stumbling block. Sure. Well, no, 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 in as much as that he's part of Toto's stable. I would have signed for Toto in my youth. Well, of course. Uh, because uh, he's, he's such a, a well-connected guy. He's and a great guy. And, yeah. but, but, you know, he already has yeah, yeah. Bottas. He already has a couple of young British guys there who are doing Formula yeah. thing. Um, um, and he has uh, obviously Ocon yeah. so there's, you know, he, he has more drivers than he probably has seats in Formula yeah. 1 um, but you know he's so fortunate because he's got Lewis and Lewis is getting stronger and stronger yeah. I think yeah. I haven't seen Lewis as strong in my entire life as I did last weekend in Singapore it was uh, a very very strong performance he dominated the situation particularly when you consider that Mercedes have been rubbish at Singapore for many years now. They've turned the corner, but a lot of that... I still believe that the, the Bottas demonstrated where the car is still. Yeah. And, and what I actually believe is that Lewis brought it to a new level. Yeah. I mean, it is strange in Formula 1 that you, do, you don't tend to see this in other sports, that the most talented drivers, athletes aren't necessarily in the top teams and aren't necessarily even in the sport in Ocon's case um, just to go to um, talk about Dan- Daniel's move to a uh, to Renault we're getting in the way of a delivery at the moment apparently <laughs> um, Daniel's move to Renault some people are comparing it favourably and uh, to Lewis's move from McLaren to Mercedes and others are saying it's nowhere near but I guess one comparison that you can make is the fact that McLaren didn't expect to lose Lewis. Likewise, Christian and Red Bull didn't expect to lose Daniel. Do you think I he's made a mistake, or do you think this could be a well-thought-out, long-term plan? It's a very good question. My view is that Daniel clearly has seen enough inside a Red Bull to realise that Max had the higher ground and it meant if he was ever going to be world champion he's going to have to beat Max first and Max has been singled out as the chosen one Helmut Markle and the team have pretty much made that the fact by the way they let him sign the figure that they signed him for Uh, so when you take all of that into consideration I can understand I can understand why he left but was there no opportunity at Ferrari? I don't understand that I think it was clear at the time that Raikkonen and particularly at the time before he died um, Massioni were not getting on particularly well and um, so do I believe that there was a very good chance for him to go into Ferrari well I don't know the ins and outs but you know that would have made more sense to go to Renault would, would Seb have let that happen the Seb when, when you, when you well, see what Daniel is, Seb, they're head to head no one believes mm. that. If, look at it the other way then Seb has had to let his pal mm. Raikkonen mm. go for Leclerc, for Leclerc. Yeah. Mm. however Leclerc is a young uh, a kid and it'll take him certainly two or three years mm. to get onto the block but then hasn't taken back but people young kids like that will make mistakes make no you know there is no way that Max is not he has not stopped learning he's mm. going to keep learning keep mm. learning so he's mm. going to make it's only now mm. I believe that Lewis is in the level that he's at mm. and the reason that is because he's put the years in and the experience and the talent um, back to, to Ricardo um, it's a strange one I was shocked when I heard it, I have to say. I had to listen to it twice mm. to fully believe it. Um, because um, he's going to have... Um, he's going to be really busy next year, isn't he? I mean, in terms of with that team, um, it's going to be competitive. But 
who knows what's going to happen. Um, maybe in time we'll all say, well, you know, I got that wrong because I had no idea that Renault were going to do that. Remember, I was around at a time when Renault were supreme. But uh, knowing what I know about Mercedes, the commitment to the speed, speed um, what they're doing here. We remember the engine is made here in, in Britain. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic success, success story. Uh, I think it originally came out of Ilmore and uh, it's grown up from there and Mercedes have been very fastidious as to how they have uh, acquired the, the knowledge and the content that they have to make uh, this particular um, current Mercedes team so strong. I mean, it's just brilliant. Uh, but it is managed by Toto and his people in a remarkably good way. They've got great engineers and great styles and great people. So um, I'm not sure. I think... I think Daniel was at a situation where he was offered a lot of money. Mm. Uh, he's very close to 30. Um, I'm not saying it's downhill as a result of that, but you know maybe his very, very best years are gone. Um, and he's probably looking at a change. Um, and he's not been totally fulfilled at, at Red Bull. And that's what happens. We were similarly surprised when Sebastian left Red Bull mm. to go to Ferrari. You know, we're saying, was that a good move to do, having won those championships? And uh, jury's still out on that. I'm not even sure about that, to be honest. I think that, uh, however, um, and you have to look at the engine that they have. Mm. Uh, When we did an overlay in Singapore and you saw the lap that Max did to be on the front row and compare that to Lewis, and then you you factor in the fact of the the speed and the acceleration and the cornering ability um, that the Renault had versus um, the uh, um, the, uh, other... uh, situations that occurred in in um, in the Mercedes vis-a-vis the, the Red Bull, you have to say that Max probably was a tent up on Lewis, mm-hmm. even though everyone's going crazy about the, the lap of a year. But please, we mustn't, mustn't ignore the fact of the deficit that Red Bull have with that Renault engine. Now, how on earth is, is Daniel Ricciardo going to be able to cope with that? Mm. Well... I hope you're right about it being a long-term masterstroke. You never know. We might look back. We'll, go, we'll do a podcast in a couple of years when well, Daniel's world champion. Well, I you hope never I'm know. Still around to do it for you because it'd be <laughs> my pleasure. What's going to happen to you? you, know, to you? I, Come on. I, 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 I've got to believe uh, that Daniel must know something that we don't, mm. um, and maybe they've sold him a very, very strong um, sell. Yeah. Uh, into believing something because it was an unusual thing to do. I mean, but then I'm sure, as you rightly say, people thinking Lewis leaving McLaren mm. and probably thought he was mad. I remember it. I remember everyone saying it at the time. And also, I think what we need to remember is it's all cyclical in F1. You know, it does feel like Renault, it could be Renault's time again. Well, I think it'll be Honda's time first. Right. Well, that will be interesting, wouldn't I it? Think, I, think, mm. I think we'll see a renaissance. I think Max will be very strong next year with the, with the, Mercedes, with the uh, Honda engine. Yeah. Uh, and um, let us not forget that that could be awesome. Mm. Right, back to you. Yes. Yes. Come on. Let's talk a bit more about you. Uh, what advice, you know, just hearing about your life now, and it obviously it's had its ups and its downs, but an overall feeling of of warmth and uh, fantastic memories that you've had and you know there's there's uh i mean in in some ways you might say you're looking back with rose tinted glasses but actually i feel as if you you've taken the rough with the smooth and and loved it but is there any advice that you'd give to your younger self is there any regrets is there anything you'd do differently is there anything you'd say to your 25 35 year old self and say you know hang in there it'll come good or you know what, what would you say well, there's a word I use a lot. I know I bored the pants off everyone at home, and that is... <laughs> it's just one word, and that is believe. You've got to believe in yourself, what you're doing. You believe that it's right, it's correct. It's good for you, it's good for your family. Believe in yourself. Because, you know... Um, Perseverance can make failure into extraordinary success. And that's the same thing, isn't it? 
whittle that all down in just one word, believe. So you've got to believe in yourself. Forget the perseverance, forget the success. Forget. There are other words all dressed up nicely to make the same sound. Um, but believing is a factor that I uh, have always either believed in myself and I um, wanted to be sure that... Uh, um, I wanted to believe that this was a part of what I do. Now, does belief also mean strengthen your convictions because if we talk about some of the decisions take Daniel's decision to move to Renault is that an inner belief that you're listening to the voice inside that's telling you this is the right thing to do because it must be very hard there's one thing believing in your ability there's another thing believing in your decision making process well I believe it's belief in, in, in many different categories first of all you just can't say that believe in yourself uh, and then take on something that is flawed exactly, um, yeah. so you have to you have to believe in what you're deciding to mm. do you have to believe in the drivers you've got you've got to believe in yourself you've got to believe in the wife that you've got you've got to believe in the family you've got mm. they've got to believe in you so I mean there's a, f- a huge amount of honesty needs to go on here and when I say believe I'm not just talking about believing in yourself of course that is for me the predominant feature mm. but it also entails a, a huge amount of uh, soul searching and making sure that you believe that the right decision is what you're doing um, and you mustn't just uh, skip over it you know you really need to uh, be sure that what you have in your mind is what you want to do mm. and what you want to achieve and I believe then if you have that total belief in your own ability and in the decision and in the structure of whatever you're putting together that if you persevere with it it will come good mm. Mm. that's great and what do you believe you still got less left to achieve because you were telling me your diary for next week and it is a joke I mean you are all over the shop you've got so much energy and drive and motivation what is behind that do you just still have a desire to make money uh, less so. Okay. I did have. Um, and because money was the only way that I could really see myself counting success. Mm. Um, so what is success? I've no idea. Whatever my bank... If my bank manager doesn't call me every Monday or Friday or the bailiff doesn't want to see me, then I know I'm actually on a bit of a roll here. Uh, because it was like that. It was mm. very tough. Uh, and I was on first name terms with all the bailiffs in Northampton for a very long time. <laughs> so... Um, uh, those days are gone, thankfully. Um, so, uh, but I, I spend less than what I used to spend. I'm not a big spender on myself. I absolutely uh, love the music. Uh, have a bunch of guys uh, with me in the Robbers, and we play. You know, we have a really a lot of gigs on at the moment. Um, but it's coming towards the end of the season, so this summer stuff that we had in in Anjuna, for example, in South Coast. Um, Côte d'Azur in Ez that's coming to an end but there's lots of other gigs at the moment Um, and as long as that continues and that gives me such an immense amount of joy but I think actually playing in a band with a couple of guys and learning new songs and listening to uh, you know my great friend Luca who sings with a song he's writing songs and we're bringing on young talent and he's developing other things and he's just had a number one in Italy with Mario, Mario Biondi and you know when he writes those songs it's, I get a great buzz out of that yeah. and um, so uh, that's the music and I cycle maybe four or five times a week uh, really long cycles I push myself so um, I, I need to keep myself very fit because I'm a short guy uh, I don't want to get fat and, um, you know, I've got to be under 70 kilos, so I push like hell. And if I'm over 70 kilos, I've gone mad with myself, really upset. Uh, so um, I do have energy, but that's why we talked about luck earlier. Mm. Luck, luck is not just in, in sport or in business or in things, but it's particularly in health Absolutely. and yeah. being strong enough and also have the determination to do it. Tell us about this project that you've got going with your son, What Now? Oh, my word. Um, so one of the ones, we talked about him earlier, didn't we, with the tattoo? Yeah. Um, the uh, FTB. So um, I spent so much time here in the UK, and I think at the very beginning of this cast we talked about 
how accommodating, how welcoming the people of Britain were. Mm. So um, I settled here, the, all the kids went to school here, um, so uh, Northampton and then Oxford and partly London was our life. And um, it irritates me when, you know, a lot of uh, Zoe's kids, friends um, who were in Marlborough, the boys were in Stowe. Uh, but, you know, it, it didn't matter where they came from. It was still very difficult to get on um, the ladder. Um, I'm talking about housing ladder. Property ladder, yeah, and, okay. Um, either through flats mm. or some were renting somewhere. And I believe, which is an old-fashioned Irish way, and that is that everyone should have a place of their own to live. And uh, even rented accommodation was never really a strong aspect of Irish life. People believed in bricks and mortar, mm. and as a result of that, um, that's kind of built into my mind ever since childhood. Um, to find that people who have gone to school, who are out there working hard, who are making a living, no matter how much they earn, it's so difficult for them mm. um, to, to save and to provide for a deposit to be able to buy a flat. It's impossible, yeah. It's just so difficult, yeah. and it's getting worse. And yeah. we talked about the prices of houses uh, getting lower in London, and that's a positive, I suppose. But then, you know, you've got stamp duty out of the world, and, you know, I'm trying to figure out where do kids nowadays, how can they ever get onto the ladder uh, unless they've either got a wealthy parent or someone who leaves them something, or uh, their granny dies and gives them the house, or something else, or mm. something else. But then you've all sorts of problems with debt duties and stuff like that. So it's a difficulty. And I remember saying to Killer, you know, what are your friends doing? Yeah. And Kyle said, um, you know, Dad, it's, it's really... Killer and Carl are the same person, by the way, oh, yeah, for sorry. the sake of the podcast. <laughs> You're just confusing um, people. Sorry, I better not use that <laughs> word, because uh, he's no longer that word. Um, he's now Kyle, of course. Kyle, Kyle. Um, so Kyle... Um, came up with an idea that uh, a house that he and Zach, his brother, shared, and, and um, they moved to, because Zach is getting married, uh, they were going to sell that particular place uh, that they had. Um, and it was Kyle who decided that, um, you know, wouldn't it be fun to do uh, a sport or a game or some uh, knowledge of whatever it is that they could have a draw? And someone would wind up at this house for, for 10 quid. And I'm saying, well, how are you going to do that? And then he had this idea of being able to, either through a form of lottery or through some sort of uh, knowledge that the people would be able to um, uh, game. Mm. There's um, a skill-based element to oh, it. It has to be skill. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I think for all sorts of reasons, mm. to feel satisfied, it has mm. to be skilled. Mm. I think from a legal point of view, it has yeah. to be skilled. But I think the legal, that all was secondary. I think it was a fact of, you know, it should be fun, yeah. but it's not just a draw picking something out of a hat. Because yeah. yeah. anyone can do that. Yeah. It has to be an element of skill, but it also has to be fun, yeah. and it has to be something that's worthwhile. So most people don't mind putting a tenner in a hat with a chance yeah. of winning seven or eight hundred thousand pound house well, um, I, I think I'd do it well, well I think that's where most do I, I, yeah. no, I I would do it and unfortunately in this these rules I'm not allowed to do it so, yeah. but I would of course have do it because I'm, I'm a punter I take risks and anyone who's in motor racing at any stage and particularly running a team uh, understands the element of uh, uh, of risk it's a huge factor um, but um, you know then he, I said to him, well, you know, you've got to be careful because will the person who wins this, will they be able to pay for the stamp duty? Will they be yeah. able to pay for the lawyers? Will they be able to do all the other things? All the additional hidden and, costs. And, and that is provided for in there. Wow. So the house is there. I think, I could be wrong, but there's 20 grand for, 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 for this and, and the stamp duty is taken care of and it's 20 grand to, to pay for the, in, the, the, the transaction and, and the justification. So it's what I've seen, and I wanted to see it clearly in front yeah. of me, um, there is there, there's the house and all the periphery that makes the house that the winner's house in their name. Um, everything is provided in that, so there's no cost. Okay, so simply put, you buy a ticket for a tenner. Yeah, and then you there's have a to maximum guess of so many, so it's not right. just indiscriminate number. Okay, and then they have to predict spot the ball in a kind yeah. of spot the ball competition. And the winner is drawn out of a hat, and they win a house. I mean, it's incredible. And that is what and I understand very precisely. Very entrepreneurial what's from Kyle. Well, 
it's on, but, but actually, I think it's been around for a long time. Yeah, that the, kind yeah, of thing. The, the concept's but, um, been there. The raffle, but it's the actually house. fun. Yeah. Um, and that is how many people uh, go and buy a ticket for a car. Yeah. Um, you just do. You look at your loose change. But this is kind of mm. different because it actually brings it home to everyone. Mm. Pardon the pun, but home because this is exactly what you're winning. Yeah. You're winning a home, mm. and the home is on the site. It's right up to date. Um, what Zach has done, is, you know. There's obviously a video of the house, so you can go and see, and you can actually see it's in f- it's real life. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fabulous place to live. Great, yeah. So, so for anyone interested, it's WAP W A P now N O W. So you it. just look for Google search that WAP now, and give it a go for the sake of a tenner. Well, you might win a house. It's Happy it's days. It's Have it's a hell of a house party when they get it. We want to go, don't well, we? Well, we do. We get our names Particularly down. Particularly because it's a real cool part of London That's as well. Great. You know, and the, the thing about it is, you know, maybe um, forty years ago, when you know, coming in and out of London and stuff like that, the, the life at that stage seemed to be uh, m- more aware north of the, 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 the river. Now, I mean, in the last 10, 10 15, 20 years, seems to be more hijinks, more good fun better restaurants good bars uh, and the vibe mm. seems to be south of the river yeah. so it's amazing how things have changed yeah. and um, you know I think it's a, it's a wonderful location close to a tube fantastic fantastic house uh, I don't know anyone wouldn't want to live in it but uh, let's see what it works you know it's, it's entrepreneurial as you say yeah, but you know I was entrepreneurial myself in setting up a race team I came from Ireland with absolutely nothing and and what I love about my kids because Zoe's got our fashion business and Mickey's got her events business uh, Zach is deep into his own little property games and now we've got Kyle doing this so I love about my kids that they've uh, enjoyed a spirit that they believe in their own ability mm. they're able to believe in it enough to go out and uh, try and make it work for a, an income level for themselves mm. um, and they're doing them and they don't come to dad looking for money they don't come to their mum looking for money and that makes me feel really good oh, you've clearly instilled cracking values in all of them now my final question to you Eddie what keeps you awake at night I mean you seem a very I was going to say laid back I wouldn't say you're not laid back as such but you do take everything in your stride good and bad does anything make you toss and turn at night? Yes. Particularly at the moment. And that is, how on earth am I going to get this new boat of mine to go quicker? Because I'm doing the Perini Cup this weekend in Sardinia. And I intend to ruffle a few feathers. <laughs> I intend to kick some ass. And I've got a few little surprises. Um, I mean, Bernie used to tell me there's no point in winning a race and doing things if you don't cheat a little bit oh stop it did he honestly say that of course he says that but you know that's the way you have to think in any business in any sport you have to be on the edge you've got to be on the edge of legality cheating was meant with a tongue in cheek of course okay good 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 um, you can't possibly encourage No, no, that. no, I wouldn't yeah. actually uh, suggest that people should cheat. But, but be you know, smart, what I'm saying is smart. take advantage. Yeah, yeah. You've got to take as many advantages to yourself as you can. And so you say, what have I done the last couple of nights that I've been waking early? And I think I'm saying, well, uh, when we're going upwind, I want to sail out that way. And what about the new sails? And so I bought new sails and we did this, that, the other. Um, I'm back nearly to my roots because the great thing about sailing for somebody of my age, we've got my music to keep me sort of rocking and going and being on the drums for a night. I promise you, I'm exhausted. That's the one thing that absolutely kills me. It's, it's just like um, a half marathon of years gone by. It's exhausting. But the thing that you're able to do in a sport and still be competitive and still be out there, you can say it's an old man sport if you like, but I am an old man and I enjoy sailing like you can't imagine. But if I'm sailing, I want to have a crack at winning. I don't want to be one of the make weights. I don't want to be at the back. I want to be up the front. That competitive instinct is impossible to crush in you, I'm sure. But isn't it interesting when you think about what keeps you awake now? A solid first world problem. How are you going to win this? stunning sailing race around Sardinia compared to what it was then it just shows you how far you've come and you've weathered the storm pardon the pun another sailing analogy but you have and you've come that this far you know you must sit back and sort of take it all in at times and think bloody hell I've done all right but you know what the thing is is I, I try 
um, I'm not one I couldn't sit down and read a book uh, and I don't know when I last looked at television I don't do those things ironic uh, that you're in television well um, you know I think we had a quick look at some little piece that I did recently and it was I only have it because somebody sent it to me because they yeah. know I wouldn't have seen it and yeah. I would never turn it back I can't yeah. do that yeah. you know but some people study it yeah. and they do it and they're ten times more knowledgeable I mean, we have a guy, Karun Shandok, in our place. I mean, oh. I only ever have to say to Karun, yeah. what happened here? And he can give me a whole litany, page after page yeah. after page, and he can ream it off. Yeah. And I say, how can you possibly remember Encyclopedic, yeah. What else have you got in there? So he is a complete encyclopedia on two legs. But I'm not that kind of person. Uh, my memory is not as good as his or ever could be. Um, and I'm not one to try to make efforts to retain that kind of memory stick. So I'm about the future. A bit like, I mean, we've mentioned him now too many times, but Bernie was the best visionary I've ever met. Mm. So he could see things in front of him. And if I can see half as many things as what he was able to see, Mm. I'd be very happy with myself. Um, You know, when we were going to Bahrain, I thought he was mad. And then he decided to go to China. I thought he was absolutely crackers. But he had that vision. And then to go to Abu Dhabi and then here in Singapore. Azerbaijan. I mean, he's the one who put this together. And um, so we all have to be in somewhat respectful that we would never have had a life had Formula One stayed in the minority sport that it had been when Mm. I was growing up um, to the worldwide stage that it is now. I mean, you guys in Sky have your own dedicated channel. I mean, who'd ever have thought that would have happened? So, um, So that point of view. Well, look, Eddie, it's been an absolute joy. You need to get back to your rehearsals. Just, Peter, hold oh, a sec, please. He's, um, on, he's on the phone, he's on the phone. <laughs> it doesn't stop um, this, man. I'm going to have to go back to rehearsals. Yes. I'm delighted to see you. Um, there's lots of little stories. I have to tell you a little story about you and I. I remember being very posh, invited to do a charity thing for your charity to Chelsea Football Club. And I didn't realise, but out of the blue and out of the darkness came Prince Harry. And I had no idea that all of you people had been so brilliant at what you do for all your respective charities and I'm here doing mine you do yours I love you for that because uh, you're a very wonderful kind soul and every time I see you in the paddock it makes me feel good oh, that's lovely thanks EJ this is Acast Recommends Every week we pick one of our favorite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. Is Facebook really evil? How do you secure your video conferences? And can you protect your privacy and still help fight the virus? Listen to DTNS and find out. We know keeping up with the latest in tech news isn't easy, especially now. That's why we do the Daily Tech News Show. I'm Tom Merritt, along with my co-host Sarah Lane, producer Roger Chang, and our regular contributors. We deliver insightful, informed analysis of what's happening in technology and how it fits into this fast-changing world. Just 30 minutes a day with DTNS helps you understand Stand and make sense of it all. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts. 